have your Bibles open at Mark's Gospel in chapter 15, page 852 of the Church Bibles. As I said at the beginning of the service, we're um, resuming our mini-series in Mark's Gospel this morning, where we're considering the events of the final week of Jesus, Jesus' life, what is known by Christians the world over as the most important week in the history of the universe. And since it's been a couple of weeks from when we were last in Mark's Gospel, it might be helpful just before we dive into the text to take a moment and refresh our minds and memories of what we looked at last. Two Sundays ago, at our morning service, we looked at the betrayal and arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. There in the Garden, Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest friends, Judas Iscariot. There in the Garden, Judas betrayed Jesus into the hands of the religious leaders with a kiss. With an act of love, he fulfilled his mission of hate. And there in the garden, Jesus was bound and led away, whilst his disciples fled and deserted him in the darkness of night. And then we came back to Sunday, two Sundays ago, and at the evening service, we looked at the events that took place right after the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. We looked at Jesus and Peter on trial. Jesus on trial before the Sanhedrin in the inner chamber of Caius' home. Peter on trial before the little girl and her friends in the courtyard below. And we said that Mark very deliberately put put these two trial scenes together because they could not be more different. In Peter's case, it was a really informal trial. He was just having conversation with this little girl and her friends as he warmed himself by the fire. And she asked him, was he associated to Jesus? And three times, he denied it. And when the, kister, when the rooster crowed twice, he broke down and wept. Whereas in Jesus' trial, it was a formal trial, albeit before a kangaroo court. And Jesus, unlike Peter, when asked who he was, said, I am being the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One, the Son of God. He was bold and unashamed because Jesus was committed to going to the cross. And that night, the Sanhedrin condemned him to death because of his capital crime of blasphemy. And what we said as we worked through those two passages, as we worked through those two trials was this. If Peter's failure teaches us anything, it shows us who we are. In our best moments, we can be spectacular failures as Christians. But if Jesus' triumph and his trial shows us anything, it shows us what a savior we have. What hope we have. Because we have a Savior who not only saves and sanctifies, but delights to use failures like Peter, like you and me. Well, with that said as the the backdrop, we're going to pick things up now in in Mark chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. And these old verses really function as a transition from Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin, which 
probably took place about 3 a.m. to now Jesus' trial before Pontius Pilate, which probably took place about 6 a.m. on the Friday morning. Now remember that Jesus was tried, rejected, and condemned by the Jewish Sanhedrin. And now Jesus will be tried, rejected, and condemned by the Roman authorities. In other words, we've got a complete picture of both Jew and Gentile rejection of Jesus. All are guilty. All wanted him condemned to death. And even though particular people had their particular roles in the rejection, I think one of the things this passage calls you and I to consider, what was our role? Yes, we were not there, but those of us who know Jesus and love Jesus know that it was our sins that put him there. Someone as well said, we will not share in the grace of the cross until we see or share in the guilt of the cross. When we look at the cross, we say, my sins put him there. But we also say, his love for us put him there. And so as we come to consider this passage, I want us to see the role we'll play now. We're going to look at this passage under three headings. We're going to be amazed at Jesus' silent submission before Pontius Pilate. We're going to be amazed at Jesus' sacrificial substitution that is foreshadowed in the scene with Barabbas. And we're going to be amazed, and that amazed, I mean, in a different sense, shocked at the pathetic cowardice of Pontius Pilate. Let's pray. God, as we come to your holy word, we pray that by your spirit you would give us a real sense of amazement and wonder as we see your son. As we see him standing before Pontius Pilate, silent, resolved to go to the cross for sinners like us. Speak to us now through your word, for we ask it in his precious and powerful name. Amen. Read verses 1 and 2 with me. Read verse 1 with me. And as soon as it was morning... The chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Even though the Sanhedrin had condemned Jesus to death, they charged him with blasphemy, they could not execute Jesus. Because they lived in Roman-occupied Israel and only Rome had the authority and the power to execute an individual. And so the morning begins with the religious leaders taking Jesus to be handed over to the Romans, to Pontius Pilate, so that they might try him, so that they might condemn him of a crime worthy of death. You see, blasphemy may have stood as a capital crime in the Jewish courts, but blasphemy was utterly meaningless in the Roman civil courts. 
And so when we see there in verse 1 that the, the Sanhedrin had this consultation, perhaps what they planned was as they handed Jesus over, they would say, he's guilty of treason. He claims to be the king of the Jews. Now there is a charge that would stick. Because only Caesar was king in Rome. Now if you look at what we read in verse 1 there, it's actually shocking as readers of Mark's gospel. We read, and they bound Jesus, and they led Jesus away, and they delivered Jesus over to Pilate. Do you see what's shocking about that, those verbs, or the reality that's going on here? Jesus is a helpless victim. And we're not used to seeing Jesus as a victim in Mark's gospel. He's always the one completely in charge. He's always the one completely in control. He's performing miracles. He's casting out demons. He's still, stilling storms. He's raising the dead. And now we see him bound, led away, delivered over. He's presented here as a helpless victim. But lest we get the wrong impression, just read the verse again. And see if anything comes to mind. They bound Jesus. They led him away. And they delivered him over to Pilate. If you're a diligent reader of Scripture, you'll know that Jesus, back in Mark chapter 10, verse 33, said this to his disciples. See, we're going up to Jerusalem. And a son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will deliver him over to the Gentiles. Jesus predicted, Jesus prophesied that this would happen. So lest you and I get the wrong impression, in letting the religious leaders and the Gentile civil authorities take charge of him, Jesus was actually exercising his charge over them. He was in complete control. He's no helpless victim. He's a glorious victor. Everything that has happened on the human level in Mark's gospel feels like it's come about as the plans and the plots of evil, scheming religious leaders. But we know that everything that happened has come about because of the plan and the scheme of our glorious God before he laid the foundation of the earth. In fact, if you just want a a reference for that, if you get your Bible there, you could flick over to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, and we, we read about this incident where the believers were praying, and they're praying to God, and in Acts chapter 4, verse 27, this is what they pray, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. We must not miss it. Jesus was in complete control. Jesus was fulfilling the plan of redemption. As we come to verse 2, 
here's where the courtroom trial before Pontius Pilate begins. And just so we can enter into this scene, let's just try and picture in our mind, picture Jesus, led, bound, brought into the dock. Picture Pontius Pilate, this Roman royal official, sitting on his bench, waiting to try Jesus early that morning. Rome loved to take uh, criminal cases early, because Roman officials like to use the rest of the day for recreation, so that the religious leaders get here first. They bring Jesus, he's bound, he's handed over, he's standing in the dock, Pilate is on the bench. And presumably, as we're going to see, that the religious leaders were also in the courtroom. In fact, they took up their positions in the witness box. They were ready to level any accusation that would see Jesus killed. So as you picture that scene in your mind's eye, now hear the words of Pilate. He says to Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You know, this is the first time in Mark's gospel Jesus is ever described in this manner. The first time we ever read Jesus described as king in Mark's gospel is here, king of the Jews. And what's fascinating about that is this is the first time, but by far from being the last time, we're going to hear this repeated refrain again and again, king of the Jews, king Jesus, king Jesus. And so Pilate says, Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? This is a capital crime. This is treason. Now listen to Jesus' response. You have said so. The emphasis in the original language when Jesus responds is on the you. You, Pilate, you have said so. Now, in other words, Jesus' response to Pilate was not a full-blown affirmation, nor was it a full-blown denial. Some have read this as Jesus saying, Pilate, you would do well to consider the question you're asking me. You know, in the original, when Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? In the Greek, it's not written as a question. It's written as a statement with a question implied. It's written, you are king of the Jews. Unknowingly, Pilate is a confessor to the identity of Jesus. But perhaps the reason Jesus said to him, you have said so, is because Jesus knew that Pilate's conception of a king was far different from his conception of who he truly was. He was not a king in the political or the military sense. He was not a king with soldiers and a crown. He was a king that had come to suffer and die. The chief priests are sitting in the witness box. They hear Jesus' response, and clearly they are furious. He's managed to give a coy answer to this question. And so in verse 3 we read, And the chief priests accused Jesus of many things. It's as if the chief priests who sat in the witness box, they could tell from Pilate's manner, perhaps he, he let a smile just burst from his cheeks. He, 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 it was like he wasn't taken seriously what Jesus has just said. And no doubt they were deeply unimpressed. And so now they're red with rage and they start leveling their accusations against Jesus. Now in Mark's gospel, he doesn't tell us what their accusations were. But in Luke's gospel, we know they said things like this. Pilate, this man claims to be a Messiah. 
This man claims to be a king. This man opposes paying taxes to Caesar. And so picture them, red with rage, shouting, screaming, Pilate, this man deserves to die. And what we read is that Jesus gave no response. Jesus was silent. And his silence was not a silence of defeat, but it was a silence of surrender to the plan of salvation. Jesus did not fight the false accusations. He did not defend his own reputation. He stood silently resolved to complete God's will, which was for him to go to the cross. We, we drew attention to this when Jesus stood before the Sanhedrin. He's fulfilling Isaiah chapter 53 because he was like a sheep silent before his shearers and he did not open his mouth. His silence is symbolic of his innocence. He'd done nothing wrong. His silence shows his resolve. You know, um, I suspect Pilate had never seen a man like Jesus before in his courtroom. A man so brazenly at peace in his presence. In fact, it's so startling to, to, to Pilate that Pilate actually breaks the silence. And he says to Jesus, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. And still, all there was was a deafening silence. Verse 5. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. You know, you can read the secular history books and one of the things you learn about Roman courtrooms where they were some of the most intense, loud and noisy places because no one ever wanted to be found guilty by the Romans. To be condemned by the Romans of a crime worthy of of any sentence was terrifying. But never mind a capital crime worthy of death. They say that in Roman courtrooms you would see people on their knees groveling, screaming, pleading for mercy. Even if they knew they were guilty, they would fight tooth and nail to, to say, I'm innocent, please, please, let me go. Pilate probably had never seen someone come in his presence, have all these accusations leveled against him, and stand there, Silent. You know, it's interesting. We, we read that Pilate was amazed. In Mark's gospel, you read over and over again, people were amazed at Jesus. They were amazed at his authority. They were amazed at his teaching. They were amazed at his miracles. And here we read, Pilate was amazed. And he was amazed at his silence. And if you know Isaiah chapter 52, just the section right before Isaiah 53, it's prophesied there that many will be astonished at him. And it then says, and rulers shall shut their mouths in his presence. 
Brothers and sisters, as we stand on and as we see Jesus standing in Pilate's courtroom silently, you and I need to know that you and I should be amazed. He was silent for you, for me. He was silent because he was determined to go to the cross and defeat our greatest enemy, death, sin, and Satan. He was silent because he was going through with the plan of salvation. We often say, don't we, actions speak louder than words. In Jesus' case, his silence here speaks louder than any word. So we've been amazed at Jesus' silent submission before Pontius Pilate. We come now to be amazed at Jesus' sacrificial substitution. One of the really incredible things is this is, the, this is literally hours before the cross. And right before the event of the cross, we have this event that took place, which was the perfect foreshadowing of the reality of what happened at the cross. Verse 6. Now at the feast, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. So it seems it's only told in the four, uh, the four Gospels that there was this custom at Passover feast where the Romans would release a prisoner. It was a Passover pardon, Passover clemency. And if you remember what Passover is all about, it was all about the Jews being liberated from bondage. And so how theologically appropriate that at the Passover feast, someone would be set free from bondage. Now, as the drama unfolds, what really happens in verses 16 through 15 is Pilate offers the crowd a choice. Barabbas or Jesus. Barabbas, we are told, was, in verse 7, was among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection. We aren't told specifically what the insurrection was that Barabbas participated in, but since it's called the insurrection, Mark assumes that his readers would all be familiar with it. If I'd said it was 9-11, all of us know what's been referred to. And it's like Mark understood the insurrection, all of his readers would know exactly what was being referred to. So we know that Barabbas had committed murder. Barabbas had tried to usurp Rome's authority. In fact, Barabbas, ironically, was exactly, precisely what the chief priests were trying to depict that Jesus was to Pilate. An insurrectionist. A man guilty of treason. Now, at first glance, the choice between the two seems obvious. On the one hand, you've got Jesus, this incredible teacher, this one who's beloved by the multitudes. He's a wonder worker. He, he does miracles. He heals people of their diseases. He raises the dead. And then on the other hand, you've got an all-out murderer. Who do you think the people want? Verse 11. The chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Just as a side point, what a poignant warning for every single one of us. Be very careful how leaders 
in whatever shape or guise, in the church, in politics, in the world, in culture, can influence people, even crowds, to do something that is deeply evil. Pilate wonders out loud as he's hearing the people say that they want Barabbas, and he says, why, what evil has he done? But the crowds only respond with louder screaming. Pilate says, what would you have me do with the king of the Jews? And no doubt that that, that, that he assumed that the people would say, maybe flog him, then release him. But what did they shout? Crucify him. And so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. Having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And here is where you and I should be amazed. Here we have this incredible picture, this incredible foreshadowing of what Jesus is about to do. He's a sacrificial substitute for sinners. The innocent is declared guilty so that the guilty can be declared innocent. Barabbas, this guilty murderer, set free. Jesus, this innocent one, condemned. I don't know if you know this, but if you stand back and just think about Barabbas' name, can, can you work out what his name means? Bar. Son. Abbas. Abba. Son of the Father. So the contrast is shocking. A guilty son of the father declared innocent. The innocent son of the father declared guilty. Here we have this powerful picture of the divine exchange that happens at the cross. This is what happens when you put your faith and trust in Jesus. He stands, he is the one whose death was in our place for our sin. He takes a penalty we deserve so that we can receive the pardon and the blessing he deserves. You know, if you stand back and think about who you're most like in this passage, it's Barabbas. Because you and I are guilty of insurrection against God. You and I, never mind committing a capital crime, we've committed the ultimate cosmic crime. We've sinned against the holy God. We deserve his wrath. We deserve to die for and in our sins. But here's the incredible thing. King Jesus comes and he comes to deliver us by dying for us in our place. You know, of every single person in the history of the universe, if anyone was able to say, Jesus died for me, it was Barabbas. You know who should have been on the middle cross on Golgotha? It was Barabbas. You know who died on the middle cross at Golgotha? It was Jesus. He knew what it was to have Jesus die on his behalf. The innocent in the place of the guilty. The righteous for the unrighteous. The just for the unjust. To bring us to God. And if you're here this morning, you're not yet a Christian. That is the call of this this scene is to be amazed. At the sacrificial substitution of Jesus in the place of sinners. The innocent 
for the guilty. So if we've stood in amazement at Jesus' silent submission before Pontius Pilate, and we've stood in amazement at Jesus' sacrificial substitution for our sin, let's stand one more time. And when I use amazement, I mean let's stand one more time in shock. Let's stand in shock at Pontius Pilate. You know, um, in the creed that we recited, there's only a couple of names mentioned in it. Of course, Jesus Christ. Of course, his mother, the Virgin Mary. And also that famous line, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. The history books would have well forgotten Pontius Pilate if he didn't do what he did on this occasion. He was a pathetic coward. A governor who ended up being governed. A people pleaser. A coward. A royal coward. The, the, the way that Mark depicts it makes it so, so clear. In verse 10, Pilate was shrewd enough to realize that the reason these Jewish leaders had brought Jesus to him was because of envy. So, so, so Pilate knew that the Jewish motive for bringing Jesus was naked envy and he saw through it because he's a really perceptive man. But then on the other hand, he's a completely senseless man. Because he would have this man put to death. You know, you know, um, instead of fulfilling his role as a governor, he ends up being governed by the wish and the will of the people. Instead of Pilate, who's meant to be this judge, just judge, he ends up overseeing the universe's greatest injustice. Now, Pilate, this is how bad it is. When they are saying, release Barabbas to us. And he says, what about Jesus? He even goes as far as to say, why? What evil has he done? Revealing to us that Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. So he knew that Jewish leaders were acting out of envy. He knew that Jesus was innocent. And yet verse 15 comes. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. Having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. I honestly think you and I would be hard-pressed to find any other example from the history books of greater cowardice than this. He acts, on the, he acts on the desires of the masses instead of acting on the courage of his convictions. He avoided the difficult decision. The people who should be condemned are the religious leaders. And yet, the one who sat on the bench is the criminal whilst the one who sat accused on the dock was completely innocent. 
We ought to be amazed. But brothers and sisters, can, can I just say, you know, you know, as you study the, the, the royal coward that is Pontius Pilate, we, we're not to forget him from history. I think he stands as a salutary warning for each one of us. You know what causes evil to fr- flourish? When good men stand back, do nothing. You know what often leads us into evil is when we go headlong because we want to satisfy the crowds, the opinions of other people. You know what can so often lead to the worst wrongdoing? It's so subtle, right? When we know what's right, but we go along with that which is wrong. Pilate was selfish. He was trying to protect his position instead of carrying out his responsibilities of his position in an upright manner. The governor was governed. I have to admit that one of the the sins that I often succumb to is people-pleasing. One of the the sins that, when when, when I studied the story of, of Peter just a couple of weeks back, and I saw his cowardice before the servant girl, I could see myself. The tragedy of Pontius Pilate is that he was the one who was responsible for condemning Jesus and sentencing him to death. But he's not the only one to blame. We are to blame. Because it was our sins that put Jesus there ultimately. It was a plan of salvation that the king would die in the place of his people. And ultimately the one with responsibility for the cross is the father and the son. They planned and purposed from before the foundation of the earth. That this is the way it would be. That the son of God would die in the place of sinful men and women. As Calvin puts it so helpfully, then the Son of God stood as a criminal before a mortal man and there permitted himself to be accused and condemned so that we may stand before God. Calvin also says, Jesus was silent so that we may boast that by his grace we are righteous. And so as we are shocked at the behavior of Pontius Pilate, we should be truly stunned at the gift of our glorious God in giving us his son, the king, to save us sinners. Let's pray. God, we would confess that sometimes our problem is like Pilate, who was amazed at Jesus, and yet it didn't lead him to that faith in Jesus. And so we pray that we would not sit here this morning being amazed, but without putting all of our faith and trust in him. We thank you that as we come before you, we we need not be silent, but we can speak because he was silent for us. Only he could be silent. We pray that you would even now quieten us with your love. You would sing over us songs of love. 
as you open up our eyes to see how incredible, how glorious is our King Jesus. God, we pray that as we leave here amazed at Jesus, it may be the gratitude and the overflow of our hearts to serve him, to love him, and not to be cowards, but to be those with the courage of our convictions, to not be ashamed of him, to not deny him, but to live up to our high and holy calling as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ in this day and age. We pray it in his precious and powerful name. Amen.